It leads, number one, to better communication in marriage. Better communication. Number two, it leads to healthier families, which leads to healthier societies. And number three, it leads very practically to a deeper prayer life. Those are the three things it leads to. Better communication, healthier families, more stable civil society, and lastly, a deeper prayer life. Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, if you would take it and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians is an ancient letter that shows us how to apply the gospel in every area of life. Families at Trinity, those of you who aren't married, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians. We've been in it for several weeks, several months, and I encourage you to read it. Read ahead. Know where we're going. You can read chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 7 for the next several weeks together. And so make worship an extension of what you've already been preparing for throughout the course of the week. 1 Corinthians is a book that Paul writes from Ephesus to a church that is a total mess. I mean, they are messy, just like you and just like me. So it's appropriate that we use 1 Corinthians to examine our hearts. The first four chapters talk about unity in the local church. Chapters 5 through 8 talk about the physical body and how we are to treat the physical body as Christians. Uh, Chapters... uh, Um, uh, 9 and 10 talk about food. Chapters 11 to 14 talk about worship. And chapter 15, the crowning jewel of 1 Corinthians, talks about the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection. And in some ways, all that Paul is talking about is looking to the resurrection. It's looking with our faces toward glory together. So, this sermon is going to be sensitive. And it's going to talk about intimacy in marriage. And if you would like for your kiddos to, um, I will be as careful as I can with my wording, but I'm not going to promise you that there won't be questions after the sermon. So giddy up. Welcome to worship. All right. The Bible, as Nathan Duke has taught our teenagers, is not what? It's not a PG book. There it is. I heard it. And so certainly this text is a good illustration of that. But would you stand together with me for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. How many of you have been or maybe are planning to go through uh, premarital counseling? Anybody ever gone through premarital counseling in this room? I see some hands. I see a lot of hands. I don't see nearly as many hands as there are couples in this room. How many as a couple have gone through counseling as a married couple in some way, shape, or form? Even if it's just eating with another couple to say, hey, how do you, like, what's the nuts and bolts of your marriage like? How many of you have ever, ever done that? Met with another couple to talk, even if it's not formal counseling, to talk about, about what it's like to be married? I see a few hands but not nearly as many hands as there are couples in this room. How many of you have ever been, ever been through um, singleness counseling? Anybody ever been through singleness counseling? What is, what is singleness counseling, you say? What does that mean? Well, like, how do you, how are you to engage in relationships as a single? Anybody ever been through singleness counseling? No. Well, we're, we're going to create it right now. This, this month, we're going to create it because 1 Corinthians 7 takes us into marriage counseling, and it takes us into singleness counseling. And this topic is so very important for us as a church because I bet, I bet that there is maybe one couple in this church, maybe, that shouldn't have some kind of meeting with a Christian counselor to help them heal from a wound, to help them talk about an issue, and especially the issue of physical intimacy in marriage is extremely difficult to talk about. And so isn't it great that the Bible gives us the ability to do so because that's exactly what this text teaches us. It goes into the most intimate parts of a marriage and Paul addresses some key insights about marriage. So, so come with me. Come with me into the intimacy of singleness counseling, the intimacy of marriage counseling, and let's think about what it means to walk as Christians, shall we? All right. Paul is talking here about Christian relationships with regard to the physical body. And when you come to chapter 7, Paul addresses a very particular thing about which the Corinthian church had written to him. Notice that it says, now I address you about concerning matters about which you wrote. In chapter 6, in verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. He takes something that they said, a summary statement, something that was verbal, and he says, now let's talk about that statement. Now he takes something that was written. And he says, now let's talk about your worldview that you wrote about. And he says, now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now notice, careful readers, that what he says in verses 2 to 5 are spoken of in light of verse 1 spoken of in light of this belief that sexual abstinence is the way to go throughout life. Are you with me? What he says in verses 2 to 5 are said in light of what they believed was the best case scenario 
in verse one. And compared to the rampant adultery in the Corinthian world and to the ancient world at the time, Abstinence was wonderful for Christians to practice because the rampant sexual immorality was everywhere. As I'll talk about it in just a minute, it was not equal. Men had sexual freedoms that women did not have. And it was everywhere. And so you can imagine that the church would say, hey, you know what, it's better not to have uh, physical intimacy at all. And so Paul speaks into this issue in chapter 7. And he says, but because it may be true that that's a good thing, but because there's so much rampant sexual immorality and the temptation to sexual immorality is plural there, because it is, you are overwhelmed by it. Each wife should have her own husband, and each husband should have his own wife. That is, marriage, monogamous marriage between a man and a woman was the standard for Paul. And while he was single at this point, we'll talk about this perhaps later, it is extremely likely that he was at one time married because it was impossible to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which he was, without being married. So, Paul gives us some key insights. He gives us three. Number one, Christian marriage is a spiritual medicine against temptation. Number two, marital commitment leads to mutual rights in marriage. And number three, Christian couples are to enjoy physical intimacy as a couple except for seasons of prayer. It's a little cheeky, I know. I didn't know how else to say it. But Paul essentially says pray in bed or play in bed. All right, what's the text show us? First, Christian marriage is a, not the only, but a spiritual medicine against temptation. All right, straight talk. If you're fighting sexual temptation and you're single and someone of the opposite sex who is also a believer is mutually committed to you and you're unified in your commitment, Go for it. Get married. Have a wedding. Let's all be invited. We'll celebrate. We, yeah, we'll do a good wedding at Trinity. Let's do it, right? You should get married. Is that God's will for you? Well, that's certainly what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That is to say that one reason, not the only reason, of course, but a factor in the equation is sexual desire, physical intimacy, the desire for it as a couple. And so Paul says marriage is a spiritual medicine for that temptation. Make sense? Clear as mud, right? Because we've put marriage off later and later and later, there are huge social implications for that. Namely, that you remember what it's like to be a teenager when marriage was way into the distance and you were struggling and you have to avoid the landmines that is all of the access to stuff these days. I mean, do you pray for the teenagers in this church Involved in, in light of their own pursuit of purity? It is so hard. I mean, it's hard for you, much less hard for those who are younger, who are experiencing changes in their own body. Marriage is a spiritual medicine against temptation because marriage is God's ordained institution in which to enjoy physical intimacy. 
George Whitfield was the most famous preacher of his generation. And when, when Charles and John Wesley convinced him to follow them from England to America in the early 18, 18th century um, to evangelize the New World and the Native tribes, Whitfield made, he made seven trips, the first of which he made when he was 24. And when he left to go to America for the first time, he had fallen in love with a woman whose name was Elizabeth Delamont. And he wrote to Elizabeth Delamont back then, that was, that was, hey, teenagers, that was the texting of the day. They wrote letters. You put them in the mail and you send them, right? And so you put postage on. And so, yeah, they're letters. Your parents can show you what a letter is. So they, they dropped letters in the mail and he wrote this letter to Elizabeth Delamont and he wrote all the reasons why being married to him was going to be hard as a minister. It's going to be incredibly difficult. And he left to go to America before he heard her response. And so when he arrived in Savannah, Georgia, he got her letter. And she broke his heart. No way, that's not the life I want to lead. And so rejected, Whitfield put marriage out of his mind. He went and he did the circuit ride thing. He went from Georgia all the way up and he meandered up the colonies up the East Coast. And he, he became friends with this couple that was a huge influence on his life named Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And when he met the Edwardses and he saw the way that they interacted as marriage, in their marriage, he said this, speaking of Sarah, he said, she is a woman adorned with a meek and quiet spirit. And she talked feelingly and solidly of the things of God and seemed to be such a helpmate for her husband that she caused me to renew those prayers which for some months I have put up to God that he would be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. And in that how you spoke about your future wife, men? A daughter of Abraham. He, he said, I find upon many accounts it is my duty to marry. Lord, I desire to have no choice of my own. You know my circumstances. You know oh, I only desire to be married in and for you. And you did choose Rebecca for Isaac. Choose one for me to be a helpmate for me in carrying on that great work committed to my charge. Lord, hear me, Lord. Let my cry come unto you. George Whitfield, this famous pastor, this, this theological giant, preached twice a day in every town going up the East Coast. And underneath, underneath all of, all of his amazing work for the gospel was a burning desire to be married, rekindled when he saw Sarah Edwards and Jonathan in their relationship. So for those of you who desire physical intimacy and you're struggling with the temptation, just as the bakers read earlier, no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. But God will provide a way of escape. Would you pray that the Lord would show you that, A, not the only spiritual medicine against temptation is the gift of marriage. That's the point that Paul is trying to make in verses one and two. Are you with me? Okay. Let's keep going. Verse three and four. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Point number two, marital commitment. Notice I didn't say love. Marital commitment leads to mutual rights 
in marriage. The Romans in, the, in those days, on the one hand, thought Christians were prude because they would not have sex with prostitutes. And on the other hand, they thought they were incestuous and promiscuous because they would have sex with people they called their brother and sister in the name of their God. Husbands and wives would call each other brother and sister. They thought it was incestuous and weird. And they sneered at Christians because Christians had the audacity to believe that physical intimacy really mattered for social good. And remember, Roman religion at the time was more of a philosophy devoid of ethics. It was a philosophy that, that meant that there were rites, there were outward signs that you, you would partake of ritual. That was how you showed yourself faithful to Rome. You would go visit the Pantheon. You would, you would go and worship these different gods. But personal ethics was not a part of Roman religion per se at the time. And Christianity says, no, how one behaves matters. And in the ancient Roman world, there was a sexual double standard. Married women could only have sex with their husbands. But married men were able and expected to have physical intimacy with all sorts of others. And in fact, men of high status could simply demand physical intimacy of nearly anyone below them, does that bother you? Does that seem incredibly paternalistic? Wives were generally held to be of one standard of behavior, strict marital chastity, and husbands quite another. Does that seem misogynistic? Does that seem off to you? It better. It should. Husbands were free to have relationships with other women, especially other women of lower classes. The Greek order Demosthenes boasted, we men have concubines for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care, which is a euphemism for sexual intimacy, and wives to give us legitimate children and to be guardians of our household. The very idea of consent and physical intimacy in marriage was given to the world by Christianity. When Christianity insisted that physical intimacy was only for marriage between a man and a woman, it leveled the playing field and it raised women up to a status that they never to that point had. The double standard was abolished and physical intimacy had to be mutual even Within marriage, no woman would have to have physical intimacy with anyone other than a man to whom she was married and a man to whom he had pledged his life to her, as Ephesians 5.25 teaches. All right, so let's take a breather from the text just for a second and make this point. The gospel challenges every culture every time, always challenges it. And the gospel in the ancient world challenged their view of physical intimacy. It will go against the grain and it will always seem crazy in the cultural moment. Christianity's expansion worldwide has always led to improved status for women. For example, think about the most, uh, some of the key passages in the New Testament. The angel appears to Mary. Think about who were the first people to see the resurrected Jesus? Men? No. It was women. 
in, in the genealogy of Jesus. I, it was so radical that Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba are listed in there because Christian is raising the status of women. And it is saying to them, even in marriage, you should be able to talk, Christian couples, about even the most difficult of intimate conversations, about even your relationship together, physically. So for all those who say Christianity is oppressive to women, all of those who look at the church and say, ah, it's a has-been, notice that it is the church and it is the gospel that has actually provided the framework for justice in civil society. And it is crucial that we continue to remind people that ethics matters. And Paul commands the same standard of holiness to honor men and honor for men that he also expected of women. And normally we think of sexual activity as an indication of a lack of self-control, but Paul also viewed it as a lack of self-control within marriage whenever you, for a reason, tend to um, not discuss it or not let it have a central role in binding you together as husband and wife. Let's talk more about that together. Notice Paul's emphasis, the default mode of marriage, is in giving, not receiving. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It is about giving. It is about giving. It's not about getting. It's about giving. It is about you saying at your wedding, hey, I vow to you. I am going to be faithful to you in sickness unto death. I'm going to give to you. And the other spouse saying, I'm going to give to you. And this whole idea of intimacy is not just physical, by the way. The men in the church tend to think, hey, this is just about the physical aspects of intimacy. No, it's also about the emotional aspects of intimacy. The deep connection that's necessary there to fight for intimacy in your marriage. Not just physical intimacy, though that's what the text is talking about with conjugal rights. Make no mistake about what Paul is trying to say. But intimacy in a relationship means that you're learning how to know each other and to care for each other. And so therefore... There are seasons in which physical intimacy is not your priority. It should be seasons of prayer. And that's what he says in verse uh, 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So, what are the conditions around which you should abstain from being physically intimate, husband and wife? Well, there are seasons that are mutually agreed upon for the purposes of prayer, and they are temporary. And so it's a little cheeky, I know, but I didn't know how else to say it. Pray in bed or play in bed. You get the point. Verse 5 shows us that Christian couples are to enjoy one another, but that marital intimacy is not only a physical habit, but it is a spiritual safeguard. And when was the last time, husbands, you grabbed your wife and you said, I'm just going to pray for you? When was the last time you took a cup of coffee, and I'm saying this even to myself, and just sat with your wife in the kitchen and just listened and talked to her? When was the last time you didn't demand something of her, but you gave to her your time, your full presence, your very being? Like, that's an implication of what it means to take a break and to be prayerful together, to be fully present to cry out to the Lord your hearts, your dreams, your desires together. 
This should be the rhythm of our married lives. Paul says that abstinence is the exception, not the rule. And husbands and wives are to mutually agree to care for one another. And why is this important? It's important because intimacy in marriage is crucial to your marriage. Like, there are lots of examples of really good marriages that are totally um, sexless, that lack physical intimacy. And there are examples of really bad marriages where it is full of physical intimacy. And so the presence of physical intimacy does not really matter. What matters is the intimacy of that couple. And there are some couples that, that, that can't have physical intimacy. And if, if that's one of you, I just want to speak to you here just for a minute, very personally. Like, you, of course, are not sinning if that's the case for you. There's seasons. There's, there's times. I mean, for a guy to have, you know, to be married and to go through changes of his body or a woman to go through changes of his body, there's seasons, gang. Some of you, some of you, like you're beyond that point in life. And that's not, you, the, the question, therefore, for you is, are you fighting to maintain intimacy in your marriage however you can? Are you talking about it? And are you willing to go there? Whew. You want to preach this text? I'm telling you, like, this is, but this is where Paul goes. When is the last time you talked about intimacy as a couple? Is there an issue to address? Is there a wound that needs healing? Is there space for the Holy Spirit to work in your life? Now, singles, we're going to get to you. Don't feel left out, please. You're coming, right? But the context of this text, he is talking to couples who are married, so we have to talk about it. But we're not singling singles out or excluding them in any way. Intimacy in marriage is the relational glue. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if that's the case, then even your physical intimacy as a couple is not only your business. It's everybody's business. What do I mean? Wendell Berry, who's a Kentucky farmer, writes that one of the breakdowns of civil society today is the lack of intimacy in our marriages. Is it any wonder, Wendell Berry writes, why today's generation looks at authority structures and looks at all the institutions that the greatest generation built, and they just want to tear them down and they don't trust them anymore? Is there any wonder? Because most of them were the result of a divorced home. Most of them lacked the context to see intimacy developed and nurtured and grown. And so, one of the things that Berry writes as he says, that sex is not, nor can it be merely a private concern for any couple. Sex, like any other necessity, precious and volatile. It's a power that is commonly held. It is everybody's business because physical intimacy binds a couple together. That couple builds a community called a family. That family reinforces what it means to have stability in the home. But adultery, porn addiction, 
not only costs family stability, but it costs children the sufficient parental support that they need to develop and to grow. And so the explosions of developmental and psychological problems affects all of us socially. And so is it any wonder why so many people don't know what it means to have an intimate relationship or to be known, why they're constantly on their screens or it's disappearing into this other world, because they haven't seen it modeled. And you know where that starts, Paul says? It starts in the intimacy of the home, married couples. So if you're not motivated to talk about it together as a couple, let me keep encouraging you to think about talking about it. Intimacy is crucial. And we have weakened the family by making physical intimacy a purely private affair. Physical intimacy is everybody's business. Because the ripples from it affect everybody, including the church. Indeed, the way we use our bodies says something about what we believe about Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 teach us that Christian marriage is a spiritual medicine against temptation. Sex is good, and it is to be enjoyed within marriage for the glory of God, for the procreation of children, for begetting children, and for the pleasure of man and wife. It is a good thing within the confines of marriage. We want to have a high view of it. We don't want to be prudish and not talk about it, but we want to put it in its proper place, and we don't want to be afraid as couples to talk about it together. Verses 3 and 4 teach us that a marital commitment, notice it is a commitment, not always what you feel, it's a commitment, leads to mutual rights in marriage. It is about giving to each other, not about taking. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, we don't need to have a a marriage certificate in order to be married. No, the the certificate, though, pal, says you're committed. And verse 5 shows that Christian couples are to enjoy one another as a spiritual habit of defending themselves against the fiery darts of the devil. And may the marriages of this church be intimate. (laughs) And may we walk in self-control, offering ourselves in self-giving love. And why is this important? Because seeing your marriage in light of eternity shows why physical intimacy is glorious. We would know that even if we didn't have the Bible. Physical intimacy leads to adoration. I mean, Tim Keller writes in The Meaning of Marriage, physical intimacy leads to adoration that literally expresses itself in shouts of joy. Marital intimacy is only a morsel of the pure joy you'll experience in the presence of Christ in holy union. John 17 tells us that from all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been adoring and glorifying one another in self-giving love, pouring love into the other, giving Love and adoration to the other. And that's only a morsel for us, physical intimacy in marriage. Look at the glory that awaits you. Jesus gave himself for you in a sacrificial way to the point of death. He said, take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. The Father gave his son up for you. The Holy Spirit gives himself to indwell you, to remind you that you are a son and daughter of God. And yes, you can go there, Christian couple. Yes, you can talk about it. Yes, single, you can talk about how hard it is to be single amidst the temptations that you are experiencing. 
See Jesus' self-offering love for you. And see the love the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for one another. This they offer for you. And when you come to the table in just a moment, you're coming yet again to be reminded of the Lord, the triune God, self-giving nature, and inviting you, his covenant people, to be part of him in glory. Not God. You'll always be creature. You won't be the creator. But he gives you little windows into glory, of which physical intimacy is just the appetizer, just a morsel of what it will be like to know Jesus and by him to be fully known. So does your most private area of life matter publicly? Yes, it does as Christians. And we should pray for each other in these areas as brothers and sisters locked in arms who care for each other in an appropriate way, of course, but who nevertheless fight for the marriages in this church to be strong. Let's come to the table praying that that is true of us. Let's pray. Father, by your example of giving up of your son to us, may we, the bride of Christ, yield the whole of our lives to you, even in areas that are extremely difficult to talk about. And would you help us, O Holy Spirit, for those of us who are married, to be able to have honest conversations with our spouse about the levels of intimacy in our marriage, and would you renew the marriages in this church? Would you strengthen us, lest we be plagued by the fiery darts of the evil one? Where there are marriages that need mending, Lord, would you continue to put couples around them? Would you help us love, care for, nurture them? Lord, would you help us to not be exhibitionistic, but help us, Father, in an appropriate way to talk about the struggles of married life in a way that honors you, of which physical, physical intimacy for almost every couple in the world is an issue that has to be discussed. And Lord, may we, in this church, demonstrate marriages that are intimate emotionally, physically, ultimately as shadows, echoes of the spiritual union we have with you, Lord Christ. So strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.